Good morning and thank you very much for being a part of today's session. Really appreciate many of you coming and uh, taking time off. Uh, we have a few school leaders with us today and I'd like to wish them all happy Teacher's Day and thank you for being part of this. We've got a good mix of participants today. We've got policy makers from different government divisions, academics, uh, social service professionals, uh, civil society members. Uh, we also have some students who are MOE scholars. Uh, so I think we have got a very, very good mix of participants today to give very insightful ideas uh, which would be very crucial as we think about the long-term notions of education in Singapore. Um, we have uh, also very thankful that we have a very, very good set of panellists today who will keep you engaged. Uh, really appreciate all our panellists, our moderators for being here, uh, giving their expertise and their thoughts uh, that will enrich all of us. And I hope all of us will be participants today. You've got the chance of asking many good questions. And you also have the great chance of using pigeonhole in case you, don't, you feel you want to contribute a little bit more extensive thoughts uh, using the uh, pigeonhole application. The background of today's uh, conference, or at least the key insights uh, which has guided this conference, comes from a background paper. You might have received it. Uh, it was authored by a few, two of our interns, Nicole and Sheng Yang. And and then in myself, and uh, it provides you a quick overview of some of the key ideas which will uh, go into the different panels. Now, this study, uh, or at least the study which informs this conference today, uh, is a study which we put out uh, on July the 17th uh, this year. It's the IPS working paper on parents and education, and uh, you can find that if you go to our IPS website. And in case if you have not been part of our on our IPS website, I warmly welcome you and encourage you to come and have a look at all the many, many different uh, products which we have on the website. Uh, so anyway, that uh, paper, or at least a working paper, provided quite a bit of insight uh, on some of the thoughts that we have today. All right, today I want to spend a few minutes uh, right at the start. I hope to be as, uh, I mean, uncomplicated as possible, though I have many tables that I'm going to be showing you, but hopefully it will give you some idea about some of the broader questions that a few of us as, who have been researching this topic have been thinking about. Uh, I titled this presentation, Uncovering Parents' Mindsets, School Stress and Support. Once again, uh, uh, my co-authors, Leonard Lim, Shantini and Nicole Chong, who have helped me for this presentation. All right, when we think about the broad uh, discourse on Singapore's education, uh, there are a couple of things that come to our mind. Uh, of course, the, the notion about uh, education is very much part of our identity as Singaporeans. So you can have many coffee shop discussions where people talk about PSLE, streaming, uh, school choice. These are important ideas. At the same time, we have a very good sense that uh, education and the way education is done in Singapore maintains the kind of competitiveness we have as a society. Uh, that, of course, means that there's going to be quite a bit of stress involved in education, and people talk about demanding curriculum. Uh, at the same time, the cu last couple of years, you read a lot more about the interests uh, pushed by MOE and adopted by many schools about the need for holistic education. Uh, finally, quite a bit of the discussion, uh, if you read through uh, our daily papers, it's about whether education is an inhibitor of social mobility or, in fact, it enhances social mobility. Uh, we've got discussions more recently on the notion of parent parentocracy, the idea about its parents' merits, which matter in the education system, not so much children. When we 
thinking about the whole issue about parents, uh, we realise that parents mediate the education system. So whatever policy initiative, whatever schools try to do, parents are in the middle of that and they determine what sort of, I mean, what aspects of education would finally percolate to their child. Um, of course, parents mediate this by one, they can put demands on their children to manage or, or go ahead. Uh, they can also at the same time put demands on schools uh, with their expectations of what they want from the school. And they can supplement uh, school education with tuition and enrichment. As I mentioned, we did a survey, uh, this is just last year, and that was an attempt to try to get a good sense of how parents look at education, what their values are about education, what they look in terms of schools, uh, what kind of proposals they have about the future of our education. And we try to put that together, I just mentioned just now, uh, we have a working paper out which you can read if you go on the news, I mean, on our IPS website. Uh, you can also read some a lot of the media coverage from that study. Uh, but it was a, a properly executed study, household survey using a DOS framework, uh, 1,500 respondents, a uh, good response rate. And uh, we looked at a very good set of things. So you know it's very, very representative because uh, when we finally got the survey and we looked at the schools that children were from, they practically had every single school uh, that was in Singapore, every single primary school. So we know it, it did cover a very, very good spectrum of parents. Just some very key highlights from that particular study, just to give you a, a background. Uh, you can see 90% of respondents say that primary school education in Singapore uh, is of high quality. 91% uh, say that uh, education is among, Singapore's education is among the best in the world. We also have something like 82% of respondents who say that the school their child is in is considered a good school. Uh, take, take that in mind that not everybody got to the school they really wanted their child to go to, but despite that, uh, they still eventually, when they were answering the survey, said that, you know, it was not my school, my, my first choice for my child, but still I considered it a good school, or others considered it a good school too. Uh, we also knew some things about uh, what they, when they assess the school that their child was in, and we had many, many indicators of that, uh, we know that uh, they had high regard for the quality of teachers. And 91% said that teachers care for their students' socio-emotional development and many, many others, all the 90s in terms of how teachers were working, supporting and helping uh, their children. 89% uh, said that the school had good facilities, 76% said that the school had a competitive environment. For this presentation, we're trying to understand parents. And so we tried to uh, do something we call a cluster analysis. I won't go through the details of that, but we tried to make a typology of different kinds of parents. Uh, by no means does it reflect every kind of parent that is in Singapore. It's just not possible. But this is a statistical method we employed and we tried to make sense of this. So we've got three broad set of parents we try to make sense of, and I hope that it will make sense to you. Uh, we talk about some of the features associated with this. These are probabilities and not definite ones, so, but it gives you a good sense that this is associated with this. Uh, there are four main dimensions that we use to try to cluster. Uh, two of them had to do with how they viewed schools. Uh, one, of course, how important they, looked, uh, they saw results and achievement as an important feature of a good school. And then, of course, perceived importance of process development features of a school. So issues like how do you try to help develop a child's character, uh, notions of self-discipline and things like that. We also looked at uh, notions of stress, how stressed were they and how pervasive that stress was. And 
what they believed were the ideals of parental involvement. How much do you need to be involved if you really want to support your child through his primary school education? And we have three typologies here, and we really had a hard time trying to figure the exact names for that, so bear with us with the names. You can co-construct some better names for this as you go through the presentation. Uh, but the one that will be very clear to you is the one called Loving Lion. Now, we don't hear it like that. Uh, the typical story is a tiger parent, maybe more tiger mum. Uh, but the, the term tiger mum does not reflect the Singapore case as we went through it. Uh, you do probably know that there is a serial on TV which is called Lion, Lion Mums, Lion Parents. I don't watch it, but somebody told me about that program. Uh, and uh, it's on, so we, we thought that probably be a bit more reflective of the Singapore case. So we don't talk about lions, but they're loving lions, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, we also had two other kinds of parents. Uh, we, one, we call it old school parents. The other one, we call it new school parents. Now, in terms of their broad representation in terms of socioeconomic status, now, again, this is not, I mean, definite. They're just the higher probabilities of them, of loving lions being from the medium, high uh, socioeconomic bracket, uh, the old school being from the lower, lower middle, and the new school one being from the high socioeconomic bracket. Again, remember this is not, I mean, this is just higher proportions and not a definite uh, mapping. All right, so just a sense of it uh, on these four items that we have, and we can notice where it's high and where it's low. Uh, let me start with the loving line parents, as you notice. They place high importance in terms of results, achievement, features of schools. Uh, think a lot about also plays high importance of process development features of schools. Uh, they're also highly stressed in many aspects, and they believe that parents should be involved in virtually everything to safeguard and support their child. So everything is high. Uh, the, the other end of it is seen as a new school parent. Uh, they don't place a lot of emphasis on results achievement as much. Uh, they place a lot on terms of development features, character, values, learning, uh, Nobody can run away from stress, so everybody is stressed, but it's medium stress as we uh, put it down. And the idea about how much parents should really be involved in supporting the child is one would be classified as low. Let me give you a couple of key questions I'll ask to bring you through the rest of the slides. And you can think of yourself, as many of us are probably, or a good portion of us are, might be parents. So what should I do for my child? What do I expect the system to do for my child? And what is causing me stress? At the end of the day, you can decide whether you're a new school parent, old school parent, or a loving tiger, or loving lion. What should I do for my child? All right, let's look at the ideals of parental involvement. We ask people whether to adequately support their children through primary school. What should parents do? So this is an ideal that people are constructing. Uh, just one look of it will tell you that uh, we'll, there are a couple of items there. If you look, find ways to provide enrichment programs, uh, ensure your child has all the resources to excel, ensure your child has adequate assistance with homework at, uh, at home. Uh, we've got the items in brackets include somewhat important and important, uh, while the ones without bracket is important. You can get a sense of it. Uh, very clearly, when you look at loving lions, uh, they care a lot about being involved in the system, and uh, they care about enrichment programs, they care about assisting their child with homework, they care about uh, making sure they keep in touch with school, uh, these things are very important to them. Uh, well, in fact, they, they also care about the child having minimum stress, quite an interesting kind of balance, but they care about everything. And of course, you have to look at it vis-a-vis uh, -vis the new school parent, uh, who these things don't matter very much. 
It's not that they don't matter at all, but in terms of the relative importance, it's probably lower. What about parental roles? What do they expect from parents if, uh, what, when we ask them, what role should parents play in their child's primary school education? Uh, when we looked at these roles, and you can notice that everybody agrees, and 94% of respondents agree that parents should emphasize providing a happy learning environment rather than good grades. So this is something that everybody agrees on. Uh, but of course, uh, the notions of discipline are important for different kinds of parents. So loving, uh, loving lions do care. I mean, at least a third of them says parents should discipline their kids if they do not perform well in school or well in exams. And 47% uh, actually say, or say it's very important, or strongly agree, that it's a parent's duty to ensure that his or child performs well in school. I'm very, it's very fortunate that very few parents actually say that parents should restrict their children's leisure time so that they can concentrate on their academic work. Of course, half agree, uh, but of course, the ones who feel passionate about it is a much smaller proportion. Just to give you a sense about parenting styles, which are, uh, again, just a couple of items there. Uh, loving lions, of course, would like to remind their, their ch child's past behavior uh, so they make sure that they do not do it again. Uh, so you can see a much higher number of that. Uh, fortunately, very few parents do yell at their children when they disapprove of them, and uh, not many people use criticism too. If you try to look at, I mean, in real terms, I mean, I mentioned a lot of things which are pretty much attitudinal, but in terms of actual uh, investment in the child, how do the different parents score? Uh, when we looked at child, time the child spends on homework, uh, we noticed that, for instance, uh, We've got mean scores, and then in brackets, it's median. Median is something in the middle, mean is an average. Uh, the Loving Lions, if you look at it, scored the highest in terms of uh, the time the child spends on homework. Uh, but it also, if you notice, uh, in terms of how much time uh, they are coached by parents or relatives or somebody close to them, uh, it's also the highest, 5.3 hours a week. Uh, that, of course, compared to old school parents and new school parents. But in general, I mean, the numbers don't um, shift very, very much. But, I mean, you can notice, for instance, on tuition, child, time child spends on tuition uh, is a little higher for loving lions. What about investment in terms of uh, tuition and enrichment? Uh, if you look at how much money is spent by different groups of parents, uh, if, if you look at, at loving lions, they do spend a little bit more, $353. And... Uh, but when it comes to enrichment classes, it is the new school parents which put a little bit more money on enrichment. Uh, when we look at the middle group, the old school parents, uh, what you notice is the median is, is actually zero. All right, so I've given you an idea about what uh, parents are supposed to do for their children, at least from how parents respond to the survey. Let me turn to what I expect the system to do for my child. And... Uh, will be brief here. You will know that your child has received a good primary education uh, if he has accomplished the following things. So let me look at some of the academic type things there. Uh, so new school parents seem to be a little lower on some of these awards or CCA, good PSLE scores, not so important compared to Loving Lions, as you can notice the very uh, big difference between 7% and 69%. But if you look at something more holistic, I will look at notions about self-discipline for learning uh, and uh, good character, good social skills, passion for learning. What you notice is that on the 
what is highlighted. The old school parents tend not to emphasize this very much. And so, for instance, if you look at passion for learning, uh, substantially lower than both new school parents and loving lions. What about what they ex expect from the school system itself? Uh, loving lions, about a third of them, expect a school and believe that good school is one where there's lots of homework. Uh, and of course, many of them uh, believe that a good school has a competitive environment. But as I mentioned just now, uh, the loving lions also place a lot of emphasis on character issues. So you can notice when it comes to character, they are unanimous in their support for notions about uh, emphasis on character and values and the notion of the role of teachers in supporting child's socio-emotional development. But again, old school parents, if you notice, substantially lower than the other two groups. What kind of emphasis do they want to put on their on curriculum? What kind of changes do they want in curriculum? If you look at uh, the different groups of parents, uh, you notice very clearly that respect for authority holds very highly for loving lions. But old school parents also feel that way compared to new school parents. And uh, if, you know, if you look down, also traditional family values, which is important. Now, again, uh, in this question, we asked, there's a range of items. We asked them whether the school was doing enough, should do more, should do less. So here are items where people say we should do more for this uh, in our school system. Let me move on, uh, absence of time, uh, to the notion of what is stressing me out as a parent. And here if you divide them by the three different groups, if you look at loving lions, I mean, everybody is, I mean, at least half of uh, the whole population uh, experiences some amount of stress. But uh, if you look at loving lions, they seem as a group to be quite unanimous that they have stress with helping their children with many tests and examinations, not knowing how to assist the child because the syllabus is too challenging, concerning the child may lose out the education in the long run, and having to ferry their child with the many different kind of responsibilities and events a child has to go to. In terms of incidence of stress and how many times actually they experience it, uh, loving lions are slightly more likely to report this. Uh, very hard to tell whether because they are very stressed with their child. The last line, you felt stressed about your child's education, 41% of them felt that way. Uh, potentially also, uh, their child is a little bit more stressed. Uh, you had to discipline your child because of schoolwork, 43%. So you can notice there's some amount of contrast. I mean, all the parents have experienced some amount of difficulties with their children or stress that it comes with uh, their child having to sacrifice sleep or something like that. But you notice an elevated set of proportions when it comes to loving lions. Let me make some final conclusions in the remaining time I have. And I'll read the conclusions. You see, the parents differ in worldviews. Uh, they differ in worldviews in terms of what they expect from themselves, what they expect from their children, what they expect from the school system. But ultimately, all parents uh, emphasize a happy environment rather than a focus on grades. I think that has come to most parents. Most, people, most parents understand that grades is not the key thing. We need to have a happy environment. Uh, but the way this is implemented can be quite different. Loving lions want the most for their children. They have high expectations of what children, parents, and the school system should do. Inevitably, and as you've seen from the figures, they are the most stressed. The old school parents have fairly similar results. Their aspirations are fairly similar when it comes to results as loving lions. 
but they're not as clued in to the newer directions of education, such as the emphasis on character and values and developing a passion for learning, uh, which, if you look at the literature, are crucial as we think about the future of our education system and future of well-being for Singaporeans. Uh, they also have lesser means to support their results aspiration. New school parents espouse values that are in step with de-emphasizing academic pressures and they instead focus on the holistic development of the child. Uh, nonetheless, they do have the resources to take care of their children's academic needs, so they're not short of, I mean, if you look at the amount they can spend on tuition, they do you know, match up fairly similarly to the loving lines. So of course, a little lesser, but they do have money, uh, whether it's enrichment, whether it's tuition, so they can support their child's academic needs, though they don't put a lot of emphasis on it. We should consider how policies and new directions of education affect different groups of parents. So some groups are likely to push the trend and perhaps also be rewarded. So you think about loving lions, uh, and uh, uh, they are quick to embrace new demands of education, but they also keep the old demands intact as well. And somehow or another, they can juggle both uh, extremely well, but in the process, they are perpetually stressed, and maybe they stress the system. I don't think they should be the yardstick of parenting. Uh, we should also consider which group of parents need more support so that the children can better benefit uh, from education. Old school parents need to be engaged, especially when you think about what is crucial for uh, education, work, the landscape which is coming in the future, and they might have to adjust their expectations. For one, for instance, you notice they scored very low, or much lower as a group in terms of passion for learning being inculcated in their ch children. So you notice some difference in terms of how they view the system. They also need more resources, especially if other groups of parents set the trend in terms of what is expected, then we need to ensure that this group of parents also have the resources to be able to achieve this. With that, thank you very much and we'll have a great discussion today. Dr. Matthews, uh, we will now proceed to the first panel of the day, Every School a Good School, Myth or Reality? The chairperson is Associate Professor Tan Eun of the NUS Department of Sociology. May I please invite Prof Tan on stage to introduce the panel and the speakers. All right, good morning, everybody. I'm usually very calm and collected un until I see Pauline. Uh, <laughs> uh, fortunately, she has left uh, SMU, right? <laughs> okay, uh, thank you, uh, Matthew, for inviting me. I had to do this because uh, only recently I asked him to do something for me. So I feel so obligated, right? So a good turn deserves another. Okay, uh, this morning as chair, I'm going to exercise a bit of my you know, prerogative to uh, present just four slides. Okay, I won't take too much time because the time should be taken for the, uh, the speakers. I thought I'd come up with uh, four offbeat definitions of the notion of a good school, uh, since it's all about definition, right? Where's the control? Okay, let me try this, right? Okay, my first uh, definition, and of course the implication for each of them, uh, is that 
if we say that all schools are good schools, this implies that all have met some kind of threshold. But some are better and some are not so good, okay? Some are best, better and some are very best, all right? However, best is just relative to one another. But best is never good enough because the best is yet to be, right? <laughs> and I'm sure Mr. Lim can identify with that, right? All right, so in other words, uh, it will make us very anxious because we never make it, right? Because the moment you hit the goal, someone tells you that the goal has been extended somewhere else. All right, the next one is that we can't all be good parents, but we can always be good enough parents. And I got this from uh, Bruno uh, Bettenheim. And by the same token, we can't be good schools, but we can all be good enough schools for our students. This produces less anxiety, makes us more restful, and empowers us to be good schools as a byproduct. Uh, so maybe we, we, we shouldn't try to be good school, but we should at least be good enough schools for our students. Okay, number three is that a good school is one which meets the needs of students and their needs are not homogeneous. A good school is one that can meet the needs of the majority of its students and be able to cater to a wide range of students with different ability, aptitude, interest, and motivation level. Uh, and I was uh, reading part of uh, Minister Heng Swikit's speech last night and I thought he actually covered some of this, all right? So this is not exactly very new. Okay, my last one is uh, I'm going to be hypothetical here, right? So any resemblance to any institution, dead or alive, is purely coincidental. Huh? And I'm going to refer to universities, but not in Singapore or anywhere in the world. Okay? All right, some universities are seen as best only because they focus on the top students. And top is defined very narrowly. Next point. Others are seen as best because they have top professors who don't teach or are traveling in the world, I mean, around the world, making a name for themselves and leaving the teaching to an academic underclass, all right? So if you send your, your children to such universities, it means that you're getting a poor education while paying top dollars, all right? So it is possible that you may end up in the good, so-called good universities, uh, but get a terrible, uh, poor education because the top professors don't teach. All right, hypothetical, huh? All right, so my final slide here is that in short, good schools are student-centric, and I noticed that Minister Heng talked about that. Uh, see student development as an end in itself. Bring out the best in their students, recognize their strengths, motivates and affirms them. Pay more than lip service to the idea that there are different pathways to success. I know we talk about that all the time, but do we really believe it, and do we really practice it in our everyday life as teachers? And our final point, have a vast majority of students who actually enjoy going to school. All right, they will not be dragging their feet in the morning. Okay, so having said that, let me introduce the four speakers today. I don't think I'll go through all the long story about their CV, right? But just to uh, give you a sort of one-liner. Uh, should we have them all up here or one at a time? How, how does it work? Okay, I actually was told that they only have 10 minutes, but I sort of calculated and feel that maybe they can speak for 15 minutes if they want to. All right, I have authority, ma, right? <laughs> All right, so the first speaker is uh, Ms. Uh, Genevieve uh, Chai. She's divisional director. And I noticed that in this panel, everyone is more or less a director of some sort, right? Uh, uh, but she is a divisional director, and I understand that in MOE, that is actually pretty high, isn't it? 
Okay, so without further ado, by the way, there are no titles to any of these individual uh, presentation, right? They only have one title, right, which is Every School a Good School, Myth or Reality. So, over to you. Good morning. Thank you for the uh, invitation and, and to IPS for doing this study. It's uh, something of great interest to us uh, at MOE, of course. Uh, we can't move the system together and we really need everybody to work together. So we were very heartened. Let me just get this right. Okay. We're very heartened by the study. I think uh, it really helped us to, um, it, it gave us, it, it helped us to understand that parents actually do have confidence in our system and uh, that they appreciate that we do provide a high quality of education and that we cater to the different learning needs of our, our children. And um, that their children go to good schools. So Prof has just explained, you know, what a good school is, what the characteristics um, could be, or he hypothesizes what the characteristics could be. But they are not so different from what uh, Minister Heng has said before and what we have articulated as well, what we hope for our schools to be able to provide to our children. So it also um, tells us that the, the expectations that parents have, our schools can actually live up to. So what is a good school in our minds? Uh, I think one of the things that we are very conscious about is that what makes a school good is how it can actually cater for the needs of the nation, needs of the people. And our, our system has gone through a range of, um, has evolved over time, right? We have evolved because the needs of our society have evolved, the needs of our people have evolved. And we started off in the early years uh, being very survival-driven, very efficiency-driven. We really wanted to make sure that we had schools for people to go to. We built a lot of schools in the early years. And then we also ensured that our, our people could um, get through the education system. So it was very efficiency-driven, as many people as possible that we wanted to get through. But we realized that that was not something that we could continue to do because our, our society evolved and we wanted to then start catering for uh, different abilities and looking at how people could, um, could build up their strengths as well as uh, pursue further interests that they might be uh, wanting to pursue. So that's when we started different schemes, such as the Gifted Education Program. And uh, over the years, we've continued to review all these programs, review the needs of our people to see if these uh, continue to meet their needs and continue to prepare them for what they would need to have, the skills and the competencies and the knowledge that they would need to have in order to survive in the world going forward. And I think we are at a stage now where um, from 2012, we started looking at catering more for the students, being more student-centric, being more values-driven, understanding that these are the attitudes that our children are going to need if they're going to survive in the world beyond, and they're going to be able to not just survive, but to thrive and to be able to contribute uh, back to society. And now we're moving in a, a slightly different phase as well as we look at technological and economic transformations globally. We are, so, uh, we are constantly told how small we are and how we are uh, impacted by the world around us. 
And all these present opportunities for us, but they also present challenges for our, for our youth. So what might have served us very well before may long, no longer serve us as well, and may no longer serve our children as well. And we've uh, heard a lot about this, about having the right skills and the right knowledge in order to survive in this very complex world where we often don't even know what jobs are going to um, be available for our children. So what have we done? How have we responded to this? Um, we've created many more pathways, and I think many of these you are familiar with, so I will not uh, delve into them in any uh, great detail. But I just wanted to highlight that as we recognize that our children need different um, pathways, uh, we have also provided for those one through specialized independent schools where we want to celebrate talent. We want our children to be able to pursue their passions. If they're passionate about math and science or technology, we now have schools that allow them to pursue that at a much uh, um, greater depth than they could if they were in a mainstream school. So students with those talents are able to do that. School of the Arts, Singapore Sports School, those were set up to cater for this. We also have specialized schools where children uh, who are more inclined towards hands-on learning, practical learning. We started two specialized uh, schools for normal technical, uh, the normal technical course, Crest and Spectra Secondary, and uh, they take a quite a customized approach to learning to cater for the learning needs of these uh, children. They also work very closely with industry partners to prepare them. So these are perhaps the two more um, uh, newer, newer schools, that newer types of schools that have been set up in, in the more recent years. But the more recent development is the schools with distinctive programs. And this is something that we uh, really have worked very hard to work with schools to help them to provide for a more variegated landscape to allow for a school for children who would like to remain in a mainstream in mainstream education at a mainstream school not pursue a particularly specialized uh, path but have found that they uh, would benefit from developing their passion in a particular area that they would like to develop um, so it could be in robotics it could be in the arts it could be um, it could be in science and technology. So schools across the island will then offer a, a distinctive programs that will cater for these needs. And from 2017, all schools have already begun developing their programs. And I think we will see this shifting the landscape quite significantly over time. So we focused, what have we been focusing on? We've been focusing on catering to the different strengths and interests. Um, you notice there's subject-based banding. This is something that's not very new, but we have, um, as in primary schools, if you're familiar, we've had subject-based banding for a long time. And this is intended to cater to students with different needs, different abilities, different aptitudes, by offering the teaching approaches that might best suit them. So there's greater flexibility in the system. It is not just a one path suits all. If you show that you are stronger in a particular subject area, then you are given the opportunity to actually pursue it in, at a higher level. So uh, normal academic students may pursue uh, subjects at all levels. And similarly, normal technical students can pursue subjects at um, NA level as well, or even at express level. And since 2014, uh, we have about 4,000 students who have actually set for, uh, normal academic students who have set for all level subjects in uh, their sec secondary four year. We've also expanded uh, aptitude-based admissions up to 15% from next year at the polys and ITE, and similarly at uh, the universities, we've also got discretionary admissions. So this is again to allow for those passions to be developed. 
Holistic education is something that we have also pursued quite actively and uh, character and citizenship education is something that we've placed a lot of emphasis on as the study also showed that uh, this is something that parents agree that we're moving in the right direction. So many new initiatives like um, outdoor education, uh, values in action, a program for active learning have come about. And DSA, this was recently announced, where we talked about changes to the DSA, where we want to expand it, allow for more schools to offer DSA, so more children, and this is very much in line with the distinctive programs, where more children can pursue their passions in, uh, in schools that are quite close to them even, they may, they may choose to not have to travel so far, uh, where schools around the island can offer these opportunities. And we've also start, uh, we've, we will also be discontinuing the general admissions test, the ac general academic test um, for entry to DSA. And this was one of the things that I think we continually refine the system to ensure that uh, we really cater for the, to the true spirit of the DSA, which is uh, to allow for students with different passions to be able to pursue them. Lifelong Learning, learning for Life program is, uh, is very similar to the distinctive programs. It's one of the areas in which we want to develop our children in, in, in the areas of community and youth leadership, music, performing arts, uh, visual arts, design, and outdoor education. Supporting joy of learning and lifelong learning. So we agree completely that our children must enjoy going to school. We want them to not drag their feet. We want them to go to school and be happy. And it's heartening to hear that, you know, in, uh, parents do agree that uh, their children are happy uh, a lot of the time. But of course, there are stresses. We're not saying just be happy and just enjoy learning and you... Uh, and, and, um, and that is the be-all and end-all. How are we also preparing them for life? With skills future, I think that is something that we have uh, paid a lot of attention to. How do we ensure our students have those competencies to be able to continue learning, to appreciate that uh, learning doesn't stop when they finish the exam, that learning continues throughout life. And we know this as adults. How do we help our children appreciate that as well while enjoying that process of learning? And so if they enjoy learning in school, then they are more likely to enjoy learning throughout life. And that's something that we want to work very closely on and we've done that through shifting pedagogies and one of the key things that we've emphasized is the applied learning program where uh, students will have the opportunity to actually apply their uh, academic knowledge to real-world situations and working with industry uh, in some of these areas. So We've been shifting, our, um, our, both our ministers have talked quite extensively about this uh, in recent years, I, I won't go through these in detail, so we recognise that we need to go beyond grades, it is not, uh, that is the, not the definition of what a good school uh, is alone, you can't just look at grades and say a school is good because it provides students or it, it uh, churns out students that uh, produces top grades. That's not what makes a good school. So I think there are so many other uh, factors that we need to uh, cater to our children in order to develop them. So we've done a few of these things to um, move the needle, I think, to, uh, to we've made some changes to the PSLE. We've looked at uh, helping our children discover their strengths and interests and created a lot of different pathways. So why are we still skeptical? So if you read the study, you will see that there are three uh, key areas. One of the findings is that uh, parents think that we should put more government funding into neighborhood schools and we should uh, ensure that, uh, but funding is, is not, um, we, we have actually looked at uh, 
increasing funding across the system. So there's been a lot more funding that's gone into uh, schools across the board, and, uh, and it's actually doubled over the last decade. And one of the key areas that we've put a lot of money in for the so-called neighbourhood schools uh, is that all schools now have money to develop their niche programmes, their distinctive programmes. So every school has quite a large sum of money uh, to, to develop these programs, and that's important. So we will continue to ensure that we resource our schools based on what they need and how we would like them to be developed. The other finding is um, teacher quality, that we should put the best teachers, the best principals uh, into to be more distributed across schools. And this is something that we, uh, we think all our teachers are actually quite good. <laughs> and, and we do, provide quite a lot of training and development for our teachers. But we do have a system of rotating teachers and rotating uh, principals in particular. Maybe teachers not as much, but uh, rotating principals. So senior principals also have the opportunity to move around schools to share um, their experiences and um, together we lift the system as a whole. And the third thing that we hear about is that, oh, you know, um, you must have standardized learning materials because if one school pro provides or is able to produce the best students, has the best uh, PSLE results, has the best O-level results, then you must ensure that what they provide must be provided to uh, all schools. And I think it is not about standardized learning, it is about customized learning. How do we really appreciate what our children need in our schools? And as school leaders, how do we then cater for those needs and work with our teachers to ensure that the needs of our children are met through the programs that we deliver? And so the, 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 there will not be standardized learning materials, so to speak. We already have sets of uh, textbooks and, and things like that that they can use. But one of the recent developments that we have just recently announced is the student learning space. And that is a learning space which will allow for greater sharing of resources. So schools and teachers across schools can actually share resources through this, um, through this portal. So perhaps what we need to do is to change the way we define a good school, how we think about a good school, instead of looking at just a micro lens, which is just perhaps a one-dimensional measure of school, we need to look at a range of measures and uh, using a more macro lens. Does the school develop the child holistically? Do they emphasize character? Will the child be able to pursue their strengths and interests? Is there joy of learning? Um, is the environment a place where the children will experience uh, rigor as well as fun? And can they be prepared? Can they prepare the child for lifelong learning? So if we were put on this lens and we were to work together, I think we need to work together to come together to shift our system together. And so we need to have the, uh, home, a strong school-home community partnership in order to bring out the best in our children. And um, yeah, with that, we'll take questions later, I'm sure. The next speaker is uh, Associate Professor Jason Tan. Uh, I met him several times over the last few years uh, in similar panels. So um, he told me that he needs more than 15 minutes, I think. Uh, but I told him, I think it's all right, okay. Anything above 10, between 10 to 15 should be okay. All right, so do take note. Nah. So without further ado, please have uh, Jason Tan.
Good morning, everybody. I'm very relieved um, to hear and say I don't have to restrict myself to 10 minutes. When I timed myself at home last night, I looked at the stopwatch and it was 9 minutes, 59 seconds, 88. <laughs> and I don't remember being able to inhale or exhale while I was <laughs> doing it. Yeah. So I hope I'll be able to inhale and exhale at least once. Thank you very much, Ansa. Right, um, I'm, I'm not going to be using any PowerPoint. I'm the odd one out, probably. And I'm going to be drawing actively on what uh, Matthew, Ansa, and Genevieve have already um, said. I'm going to be saying some of the things that they've already said, and I'm going to try and um, help expand our thinking on this question. Um, let me start off. Every school a good school, myth or reality? Um, firstly, from an international comparative perspective, it appears to be indeed a reality. Why do I say that? Number one, in 2007, the McKinsey Group listed Singapore as being among the world's best performing school systems. Secondly, um, when you look at the results of Singapore students in various international comparative studies of educational achievements, such as TIMS or PISA, um, it's very, all very impressive. Thirdly, various countries regularly send study groups to Singapore to examine our schools in search of um, good ideas that they can adopt. And compared to schools in many other countries, Singapore schools are generously funded. They provide our students clean, safe environments with ready access to teaching and learning resources. And they all have well-trained school leaders and teachers. So, it appears to be a reality when we look at Singapore schools from a broader international comparative perspective. Um, but perhaps the answer to this question, every school a good school myth of reality, might be in fact a more nuanced one. Uh, perhaps you might think of the phrase every school a good school as a worthy ideal and as a constant work in progress. Why do I say that? For one thing, as uh, Genevieve has already mentioned, the definition of the term good has changed over time in direct response to various economic, political, social and cultural changes both internationally and domestically. Um, it's important for us to remember that schools embody our collective and individual hopes, aspirations, dreams and fears for our children and for our future. It is therefore only natural that as the world has changed and evolved, so have the nuances of the term good school. Let me turn now to the collective level. At the collective level, the Singapore government has entrusted all schools with very significant responsibilities, and these include meeting the diverse learning needs of students, developing their talents to their maximum, preparing students for their futures in the workplace, inculcating moral and civic values, fostering social cohesion, promoting a common space for students from differing ethnic religious and socio-economic backgrounds, as well as national origins to mingle, to fostering greater inclusiveness with regard to individuals with special needs, providing equal opportunities for all children to acquire the necessary merit to succeed within a meritocracy, and maximizing each child's chances for upward social mobility. And you can see it's a very long list, and, and, and that's not all there is. So, um, at a commonsensical level, therefore, a good school in Singapore would need to fulfill all of these responsibilities. And it is clear to me that the sheer complexity of these big picture goals, as well as 
constant global and domestic changes suggests to me that the task of making every school a good school is probably, as I said earlier, a constant work in progress rather than something, a task that has already and indisputably been accomplished. In other words, all schools are engaged in a journey towards becoming better schools. Turning now to the Ministry of Education, in 1997 and subsequently in 2009, it published um, the Desired Outcomes of Education document. And in 2010, it listed 21st century competencies. So these two documents serve as guidelines for all schools in terms of what they ought to strive for in terms of academic and non-academic outcomes. In other words, all good schools ought to be developing these outcomes and competencies in their students. In addition, in 20, how do you say this, in the year 2000, the Ministry of Education um, published its school excellence model, which is a self-assessment model for all schools. And when you look at this um, model, it is very clear that being a good school in the ministry's eyes was much about much more than just teaching and learning, but instead encompassed a whole range of criteria, such as strategic planning, school culture, teachers, non-teachers, professional development. So it's not just teachers, professional development, but also non-teachers and non-academic staff, uh, staff members, professional development, and relationships with various stakeholders. More importantly, the school excellence model encouraged all schools to pay close attention to the ways in which school processes and systems might be better aligned to the intended outcomes. And it also encouraged all schools to engage in continuous assessment and review of their approaches and processes in order to undertake improvements. Um, at this stage, I would like to point out that the idea of being a good school, being more than just about exemplary exam results, is not exactly new. For example, in the year 1987, the Ministry of Education commissioned a report entitled Towards Excellence in Schools, which highlighted some features of good schools, including greater operating autonomy for principals, a comprehensive pastoral care and career guidance program, a wide range of extracurricular activities, and close parental and alumni involvement. The recommendations contained in, in this report were an example of what international researchers have termed policy borrowing. In other words, looking for ideas and practices outside one's own national boundaries. In this case, the borrowing took place from the United Kingdom and the United States. And we can see over the last few decades, the Ministry of Education has borrowed and adapted numerous ideas, not only for teaching and learning, but also for other aspects of school quality, such as teacher professional development. Five years after the publication of this report, Dr. Taeng Sun, the then Senior Minister of State for Education, told Parliament in 1992, quote, a good school is much more than just the good results they get if a school merely receives very bright students and produces good results at the end of the day, it may or may not be a good school. And, end quote, he talked about the idea of value added, and this was yet another example of policy borrowing from the international academic literature on school effectiveness, value added. Dr. Tay also talked in Parliament about the non-academic side of schools the tone of the school, how well run the school was, how effectively it was being managed. 
he also mentioned the importance of the principal's leadership, having a team of well-trained and motivated teachers and support from the community and from parents. Now, at this stage, it's important to remember that the ministry's incorporation of other elements besides exam results within the definition of a good school mirrors thinking in the wider international academic literature on effective schools. Some of the factors mentioned in academic studies on effective schools are professional leadership, shared vision and goals, a learning environment, concentration on teaching and learning, purposeful teaching, curriculum innovation, high expectations, monitoring progress, homeschool partnership, and a learning organization. In addition to what the government has outlined at the macro level for schools, there is no shortage at all of ideas from the general public about what schools ought to be doing more of. Just within the month of August, I've been tracking letters to the editor in mainstream media in Singapore, and I found, for example, suggestions that schools should in introduce cycling lessons for all students, they should promote healthy food choices, and they should also encourage greater racial diversity in sports. Uh, that's from Matthew Matthews. <laughs> Today, August 9, 2017. Okay. So the public has lots of ideas about what schools ought to be doing more of. Now, turning next to the individual level, many parents, of course, hope that success in school will provide their children a path to a better future. And there is an extensive academic literature demonstrating um, the existence of differing aspiration levels among different parents. And I think um, Matthew has already touched on this point. Some parents will go to great lengths to secure a competitive advantage for their children and ensure that they do not experience downward social mobility. While other parents may adopt a more laissez-faire attitude towards their children's educational success. In other words, different parents enjoy differing amounts of financial, social and cultural capital and they differ as well in how they utilize these forms of capital. Why am I saying all this? Because in line with this parental diversity, what is a good school for one parent isn't necessarily or sufficiently good for another parent when it comes to school choice. In other words, is it possible or even desirable to have every school a good school for every child and for every parent? Um, by asking this question, I'm introdu introducing the idea which Ansa introduced earlier of differing degrees of goodness. And attempting to answer this question offers a second reason why I suggest that making every school a good school is a constant work in progress. Still on the point of differing degrees of goodness, I would like to consider differing degrees of goodness within what Genevieve uh, referred to as an increasingly diversified education landscape. In order that every child and every parent can have an equal chance to take advantage of this diversified landscape, and in order that every child can maximize his or her talents and potential, it is important, therefore, that every child and every parent be adequately acquainted with the nature of this diversified landscape and with the various options and possibilities associated with various kinds of good school 
so that they can make informed decisions. At the same time, it is important to consider the likelihood of various options within such a diversified landscape, enjoying varying degrees of societal prestige. And probably it is true that school choice at the primary and secondary levels is somewhat different. Still on the point of differing degrees of goodness, the former Prime Minister Go Chok Tong in his 1996 National Day Rally speech uh, said, quote, parents want to send their children to good schools. They get very disappointed when they fail to secure places in the most popular schools. We cannot make all schools equally outstanding. That is impossible. Standards will always vary from school to school, but we can make every school in Singapore a good school and the best ones truly outstanding, end quote. Likewise, the current Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung said in his 2013 National Day Rally speech, quote, we want every school to be good, but I accept that parents and students will always carefully choose which schools to go to. It is important that parents compare and contrast and choose on the right basis, not just exam grades. I think it is also good that we have top schools nationally, schools which are acknowledged as outstanding. Whatever solution you make, parents will find ingenious ways to maximize their chances. Our society is getting more stratified, competition is intensifying among our students. The focus is too much on exam performance and not enough on learning. It is very hard to fight these forces because parents want the best for their children and they think the exam results are what makes the difference, end quote. So both Mr. Goh and Mr. Lee have openly acknowledged that not all schools in Singapore can be equally outstanding and that schools will vary in popularity in line with parents' choices. In this connection, I would like to highlight the somewhat arduous task of getting parents to consider the prospect that all schools are complex, dynamic institutions and that being a good school, as I've pointed out earlier, involves so many different areas which most parents are not often aware of or concerned about. I would like to end my presentation with these three questions. Number one, which school is good for which child? Number two, is a good school necessarily popular? Thirdly, are the truly outstanding or most popular schools necessarily the best choices for each and every child? Thank you. So far, I noticed that our list of uh, what should go into an inventory of good schools is getting longer and longer, right? So I hope someone is taking down notes. Huh? So maybe at the end of this uh, conference, we can actually uh, come up with a pretty robust measure of what a good school is. Okay, the third person to speak today is uh, Mr. John, John Yap. Uh, are you around, John? Okay. There, okay. And uh, John is into chocolate, right, currently? Yeah. And uh, he's also chairman of uh, a primary school uh, advisory board committee, as well as treasurer, isn't it, in the CJC? Yeah. So, uh, should we have you? Yep.
morning. Uh, I actually don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> because, you know, I am not officially an educator. Um, I'm a volunteer, like many Singaporean parents. Um, although I must say, my kids don't go to uh, Tomasic Primary, so I don't know why I'm volunteering there. Um, my kids have all gone to schools where um, we didn't have to ballot. And uh, for the record, they're doing okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna, can, can we get off this screen and just have the words? This makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel like I'm staring at myself. <laughs> all right. Um, how I came to be standing here is a few weeks ago, um, Dr. Jillian Ko asked me if I could come speak at this um, conference or dialogue, and I said, okay. Um, not sure what I'll talk about, but okay. And, um, and then came this um, email from IPS, uh, which was um, heart-shattering, to say the least. Um, it, it kind of said, and I'm paraphrasing here, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we would be grateful to hear um, how a non-elite school uh, like yours uh, nurtures its students academically and non-academically. You, you see, I always thought we were an elite school. <laughs> uh, so that was, uh, so you know, I went online and I, straight away I typed in, how does MOE define elite schools? Uh, and MOE doesn't define an elite school. Well done, MOE. Right, uh, but then you have all these um, parent—I um, don't know what you call them—websites or chat groups, and, and of course the same ten, twenty names keep coming up. You know, um, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. So I went through Mr. Minister Hing's uh, checklist, and I ticked off all the boxes, all six. So we're a good school, but lesson number one: good school doesn't mean elite school. Uh, and at Tomasic Primary, you know, we have the, one of the only two Lego um, design robotics labs in, in the country. Uh, and we actually have a roboticist from Lego come down three times a week. And, uh, we, and you know, we don't do robotics just as a CCA. We actually work it into the curriculum, you know. And, and we don't extend the, the kids' hours in, in doing so. We work it into their math, into their science, into their English even. Um, and it's a fantastic laboratory. Uh, um, but that still doesn't make us an elite school. Uh, we have, in, 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 and, and we embrace, you know, what MOE encourages wholeheartedly. We have, uh, we, we try to teach not just using the textbooks. You know, we have this really good orchid hybridization program. Uh, the kids get to learn science, plants, basic biology. You know, they, they, they get to do the, the pollination, the marketing. Um, they get to be creative and, and, and it, it really helps them. And at the same time, you know, they're also quite entrepreneurial because when then we, we, we get these nice looking orchids, you know, and then we sell them to raise funds uh, and we raise quite a lot of money. It's easier selling orchids than it is selling cakes. Uh, 
Yes, you know, last year we even uh, had rices, you know, that company, that, to gold plate some and, and, and we sold them. And, and you'd be surprised how many people want to buy gold plated orchids. Um, so I think we are a very um, forward thinking um, primary school, but that doesn't make us elite. Uh, in terms of results, MOE can verify this. Um, I think since I've been there, it must have been seven, must have been seven years already. Uh, every year we outstrip the national averages, right? Every single year. Whether you look at the category that uh, on, on passes obtained or if you look at the category for A's and A stars, in every subject we outstrip the national average. Uh, and then they have this category called called comparable schools or something, and we beat them also hands down. But that doesn't make us an elite school. Uh, in the field of uh, sports, uh, domestic primary, every year, podium finish for track and field. Every single year, in every single category. But that doesn't make us an elite school. Uh, which is quite disappointing, if you ask me, because, you know, uh, I've obviously been living under an illusion <laughs> for the longest time. Uh, I told my wife I was upset. She said, why are you upset about these little things? Uh, I said, it's not a little thing. Uh, it's very disheartening. And, um, but, you know, it, that's, that's the reality in society, yes? It's, it's not the school and, and what we do that makes it elite. It's not the results we achieve that makes it elite. It's, it's, um, it's the people who go to the school. It's, it's about social status and, and, and this, this sense of elitism that, that has existed with the human race since the English schools were set up seven, eight hundred years ago, right? And it's all over the world, it's not just us. So I don't think it's something we should be ashamed of. We can feel disappointed like I do, but we don't have to be ashamed about it. When, when I was a practicing lawyer, you know, I, I, I would go to Africa four or five times a year. And, you know, when you meet a big shot, they always introduce you to their children, you know. This is my son. He goes to the best school in East Africa. And, you know, of course, I'm thinking, well, I wouldn't expect anything less, yes. Uh, you go to China, that's what people do. They, 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 so, it's, so it's not something we can run away from. Um, which brings me back to what I'm actually supposed to talk about. Uh, and, and I don't have a, a, a script or a speech, and like Jason, I, I don't have any slides. Um, so I'm just going to sort of touch on that, that topic. Um, I'm going to ignore the clock for a bit, and then I'm going to um, very quickly and sneakily weave my way into my two pet peeves, yeah? Um, now, I actually sincerely think, and honestly think, that every school in Singapore is a good school. Um, even though I'm not fond of slogans and I'm not fond of discussing slogans, right? I, I think we spend too much time putting policy makers and our best brains into rooms and committees. And when you have committees, you have subcommittees and then they spend months discussing, deliberating ideas and then they come up with slogans like passion made possible. And, um, but anyway, we're here to talk about it. Uh, I, I think if, if you take the slogan as a mission statement for our educators, I think it's really on point because it is a constant reminder to 
the, the, the administrators, the, the educators, that we're not here to just build a few elite schools. In the way we hand out grants, in the way that we render support, it is about making every school a good one. And if you're a teacher, you know, you, you are constantly reminded about what the six features are. I can't remember what they are. I've read them in the reports, but uh, I remember thinking that they're all quite good, right? So I think as a mission statement, it's quite accurate, and I think it's useful to have. If, however, there was some intention that we could convince the public and every parent that, you know, hey, listen, doesn't matter what school your child goes to, they're all good schools, they're all good schools, then I think it's not going to achieve that, that end. Because, you know, as I said earlier, there will always be this view that certain schools are elite and that our children will get further and have brighter futures if they go to them, right? Um, and I think if it was in, if that was the intended effect, I, I think we're deluding ourselves if we think that people will buy into it. Um, a school is, you know, you cannot see a school in vacuum, right? It is an instrument that a society or community uses to educate its children so that they become useful individuals who can contribute at a later time. And uh, if we took that view, then I think, um, you know, I think MOE has passed the test in, in what it's done. Uh, I'm going to now weave my way into two pet peeves that I feel we really need to talk about in order to make uh, our education system and our, our um, schools uh, and the environment for our children better. And, and here, I, this is not a script, this is actually a printout from a web page. And I'm going to read this to you verbatim. I have to take off my glasses for this. Oh, sorry, my pet peeve is tuition and, and how it messes with our education system. PSLE is just around the corner. Here's the exam timetable by MOE and then it lists the timetable. From now to then, it's do or die for your child. For us parents, we must ask ourselves, this is not even in good English, you know. What more can we do for our child so that he can get into a top secondary school, qualify for a good stream, and well, have a strong future? Or do we die trying to figure out how to prepare our child for the most important exam of his life? Most parents will tell you that it's easier said than done, that you already have given your child all the tuition classes and assessment books in the world, and that your job as a parent is done, and that it's now up to your child to get the results that will make you proud. Not me, this person who runs this tuition center, because I believe there's always something more we can do for our child. PSLE isn't just the most important exam for our child, it's also the most important exam for us parents. <laughs> you laugh, you laugh, as I laughed when I read this, and this is not the only website, yes? There are dozens like that, okay? And then my heart sank. 
because then I looked at, I'm going to hold the brand down so that I don't get into some defam defamation lawsuit. 97,344 views posted July 2017. You know, when we at Awfully Chocolate put up a new product, we get the media to write about it, we get about 900 views. <laughs> we put in money to buy some votes and likes, we get 2,000 views. 97,344. How many students take PSLE a year? 35,000? 35, 35 to 38,000? It means some parents read it twice. <laughs> I hope they read it out of incredulity, right? But, you know, I think the reality is they went back the second time to see where do I sign up. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's a billion-dollar industry today. And, and, and for me, as someone who works with a primary school, I feel it's taking away a lot of credit from our teachers. We don't encourage it, you know, not at Tomasic Primary School. Uh, and yet we get good results. Have some faith in our education system. Have some faith with what MOE is doing. We're doing okay, right? You go to all the schools, we have the basic infrastructure, we have advanced infrastructure. Some schools got no swimming pools, some schools got no robotic labs, but by any measure, right, we have all the infrastructure. Talk to the teachers, meet them, right? Look at the way they teach. The teaching pedagogy, I mean, there, of course, there are some differences here and there, but across the board, it's okay. We have a good balance between the old-fashioned Asian style of teaching where they, they learn to do some drills and yet we allow them to think on their own. We teach them some critical thinking. It's a good balance. It's a balance we found here in this country and we should be proud of it, right? Don't have to pay $353 a month, you know? From, from the survey IPS was showing, we seem to have very reasonable parents in Singapore. Um, when you're on the ground, I don't think that's the case. I think we're all a bit more careful. <laughs> we're all a bit more careful when we're filling in survey forms, right? Especially when it says that we're Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, okay? <laughs> right? Um, so, you know, the first, it starts here, right? It starts here. The policymakers are here. The educators are here. It starts here. Discourage that sort of thing because it feeds itself. It's a vicious cycle, right? The bet, you know, you, you find that they, you need to set more and more difficult, ridiculous questions about car A leaves point X at what time, car B leaves point Y at what time, you know, when do they ever meet? Or, and, and then the tutors figure it out, right? But it's not your kids figuring it out. I tell the teachers, education is about teaching our kids to self-study and learning to think for themselves. You learn certain concepts because in your life when you didn't have tuition and you looked at that math some over and over again, at some point you had a eureka moment. You figured it out. And you remember it for life and you can apply it. So that's important. Okay, so wean ourselves of that. Second thing I want to talk about is um, messaging. I, I think sometimes we oversell our messages uh, in, in schools, you know. Uh, I see the ministers, you know, I'm a volunteer, I can say anything I want. The, the ministers, are, every day they are saying, you know, oh, dare to dream, you know, live your passion. Passion made possible. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think we've overused that word 
passion and I think we've oversold this, this thing that everyone can follow their dreams. You know, in schools, the greatest disservice we are giving to our children is we're telling every one of them every day that every one of you is a leader. My oldest child was a leader of cleanliness. means he cleared the, the waste paper <laughs> basket every day, right? Um, you know, not everyone can be a leader, right? It, 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 it begs... It's, it's not logical, right? If everyone's a leader, who's following the leader? The leader must have someone to lead. And not everyone was built to be a leader, right? And not every dream... Not everyone will live their dream, you know? Not everyone is going to be that professional footballer. Not everyone's going to be that cellist. Not everyone's going to run her own kick shop, right? And we mustn't trample or, 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 or talk down to people and, and, and belittle the lesser jobs. We are belittling the lesser, lesser jobs, you know? When you tell people that, right? follow your dream, you know, live your passion, they're not thinking, oh, oh, my passion is to be a plumber or my passion is to be a HR assistant, you know, my passion to be an admin clerk in some, some company. But for every Tan Min Liang, there is a huge supporting cast. Right? For every Steve Jobs, there's a huge supporting cast. Of course, we all want to be the guy designing and creating the iPhone, but for every such person, there are a few thousand, few hundred thousand people in a factory putting together the pieces, you know. And that can't be full of fireworks and passion every day when that's your job. So in the teaching profession, we're losing a thousand teachers a year. And if you ask them why they're leaving, of course, you know, there's a whole myriad of reasons. But largely, they are starting to think, this is not my dream job. I don't feel passionate about it every day. I, I have to do admin work. I thought I was only going to talk about, you know, just inspire kids and, and help them build their dreams. I didn't know there was admin work. The public's reaction, AMOE, hire administrators to do the, the dirty work for them. Lah. But what about the administrator? Poor fellow, didn't he have dreams or passions? So let's focus a little more on the daily grind that is a necessary part of all our lives so that our children, when they grow up, have a little more fortitude. In conclusion, I had a meeting. It's all very disjointed, right, because I have no script. I had a meeting with um, some people last week from a top uh, local financial advisory. And um, at the beginning of the meeting, or in the middle of the meeting, actually, one of them says, you know, I, I didn't, uh, we didn't tell you at first, but, you know, every one of the founders of this top advisory firm is an ACS boy. Where, where were you from? I said, oh, I'm from St. Pat's. And that's killed the small talk. <laughs> right? um, but if, it's, if, it, if there's any message, right, the message is that you know, there are still instances where the people from the elite schools will have to canvas for business from a boy from St. Pat's. So, you know, don't write off the neighbourhood schools. Thank you.
So I think, can you hear me? So I think if Straits Times or the newspaper is going to write about this, uh, maybe the headline should be, let's demolish the idea of elite schools. You know, I think we all have good schools, but why do we need to talk about elite schools? Why do we need to give the label of elite schools? Okay, the next speaker, uh, unfortunately, have five minutes. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, sorry. Please take your time, okay? So uh, she's Aidaro Yani from uh, Mendaki. Uh, she's Director of Education and Research Policy. Thanks, Prof Tan. Um, I'm trembling. I don't know whether it's from the cool or from um, John's sense of humor. Good morning. Um, in my presentation today, um, I will be using a different set of lens um, to look at, at this topic. I hope to share some insights on the aspirations of parents from this disadvantaged background and invariably their challenges. Having had some exposure working with such families in my work in Mendaki, my involvement in a top school like Henry Park Primary School and a specialized school like Spectra Secondary it has provided me yet um, another set of lens with which we can use to understand how schools nurture their students to be well-rounded individuals in spite of their family background. I will also touch on how community organizations like Mendaki work as key partners to schools and parents in the education of our students. Finally, I will conclude with some thoughts um, about every school a good school. Understanding the priorities for disadvantaged families provide an insight on the needs as well as the challenges faced by these families. Mendaki completed a longitudinal study with LKY APP, uh, SPP on the lives of disadvantaged families in 2015. It showed that disadvantaged families placed their top priority on children and family, education, and followed closely by money, religion, and health. These findings can be contrasted with those of the Singapore Conversation Survey in 2013 um, involving 4,000 Singaporeans where top priorities of Singaporeans were job security, healthcare, and housing. While children and education are placed as top priorities, a majority of these households recognize that they were not sufficiently involved in their children's development and education only about half are involved directly and provide regular support in homework, with 40% admitting not involved at all. The reasons for not being involved as they think they ought to be can be seen from two angles. First is their inadequacy to provide the support, having come from a different education system, lack of familiarity with the curriculum, and the lack of confidence in managing mathematics. Second is the distractions that their children experience, ultimately resulting in premature exit and their state of health that is problematic. We all know the complexity of the ecosystem in which disadvantaged families find themselves in, and the challenges are often the cause and outcome of their difficulties, and thereby getting caught in not just one or two vicious cycles, but three of these such vicious cycles can be seen as revolving around health issues, lack of stable employment, and stress related to raising children and difficulties in supporting them in education. There is a lack of voice for many of these disadvantaged families, especially those headed 
by elderly individuals or single mothers and having major responsibilities. At a broader perspective, in terms of their coping strategies and resilience, they narrated the types of trade-offs they face when going through difficult times. Some households mentioned that they went to Johor to purchase food and household items to save money. The following citations bring light into the more extreme coping strategies in the form of nutritional deprivation, especially when times are hardest. I am sure some of these voices are not new to those who work directly with these families. Here are the silent voices of children who come to our schools every day. A Denver elementary teacher, Kyle Swatch, asked her students to complete this sentence in writing. I wish my teacher knew. The student responses were so unexpected, so moving. And for many within the disadvantaged households, their daily pressures are compounded by a significant degree of isolation that easily becomes a vicious cycle of poverty and ultimately neglect. To what, to what extent have we been intentional in mitigating these issues in these children's lives outside of school that get in the way of their success in school? Disadvantaged families have aspirations to do well, just like everyone else, but life circumstances make it challenging for them. Psychologists call it the bandwidth tax. Understanding this is important, so we are more mindful of our stereotypes and biases. We recognize that schools are already doing a lot to help children learn and perform well academically and holistically. I think while we all know and operate on the knowledge that students entering P1 do not come from the same and level playing field, almost all indicators and measures expect these children to attain the same level of achievement within the same time frame. Granted, there are additional resources and multiple pathways those who are left behind are not surprisingly, those who left behind are surprised, surprising, are not surprisingly from the disadvantaged homes. So perhaps the measures of schools have to move beyond the provision of additional resources and multiple pathways to close gaps. Exactly what gaps are we closing? So for example, when a student enters primary one, having heard millions of words fewer than their peers. We provide the child with interventions and learning opportunities to close the gap. Is this adequate? Do we know what these children are missing that their better counterparts from the high social capital families have? I think, they, I think this will take us to a completely different paradigm in understanding gaps and how to close them in these early years. I have the privilege um, of contributing to two schools which are quite distinct. Uh, I will first share with you how Henry Park Primary School, as a top school with a majority of students from advantaged backgrounds, catered to the small number of its disadvantaged students. In our current society today, affluent families are doing more than ever before in their children's lives outside of school to enrich their children's education. Affluent children have continuous access to enrich learning opportunities like um, camps, lessons, sports, travel, technology, and more, while disadvantaged children have limited or no access to such learning at all. Henry Park Primary School recognized the need to do the same for disadvantaged families in the school. We have increased access to out-of-school learning for the most disadvantaged students to help them succeed. For example, these students go on learning journeys 
to places of interest, attend enrichment programs in music, and receive additional resources like storybooks that are beyond the FES schemes. Henry Park also gives due attention to the well-being of all students, especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds through dedicated teachers. These efforts are being recognized when our HOD for well-being, Dr. Ao, received the President Teachers Award, the Pinnacle Award for Teachers this year. Henry Park has a system that meets every child where he or she is and gives them tools to be successful at each stage of their education. Next, I will share with you the Spectra story. Spectra is a specialized um, anti-school with a pioneer batch of students in secondary four this year. Let me relate the um, story of James, um, not his real name, a secondary four student who will be sitting for his N-levels this year. His father was incarcerated and mother doing odd jobs. His elder sister dropped out of school and even his younger brother, who have almost dropped out of school, he's the only one in the family attending school. James had difficulty attending school regularly since he joined Spectra. The form teachers, Yearhead and KPs never gave up on him. Numerous home visits were made, even though he lives quite far from the school, actually. Sometimes just to pick him up and bring him to school. The school also worked with multiple agencies to support the family and provide the student with financial and emotional support. There were many challenges to keep him motivated. His football coach ensured that he played in games, even though he was not in the first team, to motivate him to attend school in the morning. He received Student of the Month Award for showing resilience in attending school regularly. He was included in all learning journeys and cohort overseas trips to build friendships with his classmates and to establish a positive relationship with the teachers. One of our KPs also worked closely with the mother to offer her support and advice. She does monthly visit to the house with groceries and will have lunch with the family. She is almost like a family actually. While his overall attendance is far from ideal, he has managed to keep striving despite his challenging home situation. He has articulated his desire to complete his N-levels this year and to attend ITE. We are confident that he will complete his N-levels. This story is not a success story yet, but certainly one of the highlights, the efforts of a school is putting in to support our students. These two schools took different approaches, but they worked towards the same aim to nurture all their students, regardless of backgrounds, towards achieving their potential. To raise a child, it takes an ecosystem to work in tandem, and it's not smooth sailing. MOE recognizes the importance of working with parents and key stakeholders like the SHGs. Mendaki, for instance, recognizes the need to move beyond programs and to ensure impact at the systemic level. Mendaki's focus is on the upliftment of the disadvantaged through education. The Mendaki Tuition Scheme, or MTS, is an important institution in the, in the community. The MTS is not just a program. Through the years, MTS has undergone, has undergone system level changes in order to provide students with a positive environment to work towards better academic performance. The role of MTS tutors, our tutors, go beyond teaching to also include elements of care and ongoing interest in their students' welfare. 
This is especially so as the majority of our students are from disadvantaged background and tutors could help provide additional source of support. Research found that even when enrolled in a program that encouraged adult support, students from disadvantaged backgrounds reported higher levels of effort towards academic performance. MOE too recognizes the potential of SEL and the support that closer teacher-student relationship brings about in developing holistic learning. We believe in working closely with schools, complementing school efforts to support families and promote the success of every child. Resilience is a key trait in the VUCA world of the 21st century. Resilience is a key, key trait, especially for children from disadvantaged background. And resilience is not just about greed, it's about relationship. Despite good intentions, too many of our efforts to help children overcome adversity are failing to prioritize the power of a strong adult relationship. And by mischaracterizing the battle that disadvantaged kids face as one of individual motivation or greed, policies send a signal that kids themselves are at fault if they fail to thrive. Jack Chonkov um, from the Center on, on the Developing Child at Harvard said that, quote, when we think that kids just need willpower to overcome adversity, we miss opportunities to provide the relationships and build the skills that can actually strengthen resilience. And relationship is about caring. Caring is a cherished human condition that is necessary part of our development. Education should not just be concerned with knowing about things or performing in exams, but also with developing our students' capabilities in changing their lives and the world we live in. This is in line with um, the survey by IPS where parents' expectation is when teachers show care in school. And this is the tenet of the Mandaki Care Pedagogy. So how does a good school look like? How can we measure success of a good school beyond teams and PISA? What are the indicators for equity? Every school is a good school if schools define success by how they are able to have equity in education for all their students, especially the disadvantaged students. To make educational equity systemic and enduring, we should do more and better to work with one another to help disadvantaged students holistically. Schools, national agencies, community agencies, and parents need to help children from all backgrounds understand that their ethnic, racial class origins, nor their neighborhood limit what careers, life options, or interests they are entitled to choose. That their abilities are not determined by their social origins. No matter what skills they may have today, abilities can be developed with hard work and determination that the world is just as much theirs as anyone else, so that they should feel entitled to participate fully, even when they feel unwelcome. We must believe all children are capable of great things, and usually the limitations of what children are able to do are the limitations of the adults who serve them and the systems in which the children and adults are embedded. To build the education system that the 21st century demands, we have to continuously work together in new and innovative ways to build a good school for all students, especially the disadvantaged students. With that, I thank you. According to my clock here, we have exactly 17 minutes, but I'm going to extend the, the Q&A. 
and, uh, and, and that will spare you from uh, the temptation of eating another piece of cake, I think. Uh, and also prevention of diabetes, right? <laughs> All right, so we'll probably have something like 20, 20, 22 minutes for Q&A. I hope that you guys can uh, come forward, ask your question. Please identify yourself. And if you are a bit uh, shy, then maybe use the pigeonhole, right? You're supposed to uh, key in your questions. Um, all right, anybody want to be the first one? I know chairman usually ask questions, but I'm not going to ask any question. Not yet, anyway. Okay, um, let's have Pauline first, and then uh, and you next, okay? Pauline, go ahead. I thank you. I, I really enjoyed all the presentations. My question is to MOE. It's so rare to have MOE there, so I need to ask MOE a question. So all these stresses on schools, the ultimate destination really is the university, right? That is why parents do all this. So now at the universities, we have discretionary admissions. And of course, down the line to secondary schools, junior college. So my question to MOE really is one on social contract, right? When you introduce discretionary admissions, what is that social contract that you have with stakeholders? So this means parents and, and the students. Because on one hand, they built up their portfolio, you know, very in, through very, very difficult journey, right, to achieve that test score. And that test score is a very objective, quantitative indicator. So therefore, when you have limited places at university, that's in some ways, a very shallow way, of course, the fairest way to select, right? So we introduce discretionary admissions, and we all cheer. The problem is discretionary admissions dwells in a very intrinsic, subjective sphere. So how do we then remain objective? As we increase the proportion that we allow through discretionary admissions, Educators like myself and Ansa always worry. Of course, we believe that we should not rely on the A-levels or the university admission scores solely. But the problem is, morally, we do owe the students who work so hard and followed the path that we have set for them from primary school, through secondary school, through JCs and polytechnics. How do we balance that? Thank you. Okay, please go first. Thank you, Pauline. Firstly, I think you said uh, the ultimate destination is university. And I think um, that in itself already is something that uh, we have been talking quite a lot about. Uh, is that the ultimate destination? And is that really the best way um, to, to prepare our children as well, to say that that is the the only destination, perhaps, and only if you arrive at that destination, you will be considered successful. And increasingly, uh, we know that that's not necessarily so. Uh, we see that happening around us, you know, in, in um, many ways. Uh, many people have succeeded uh, without a university education. So it really boils down to what that measure of success is. And how do we broaden that definition of success? How do we help our parents and uh, 
society in general, something that's been so ingrained in us, uh, how do we move away from that to say that there are different ways in which you measure success, that university is not the only way, and if you don't get to university, uh, it doesn't mean that you have failed. So I think that's something that we have been working very hard to try and provide opportunities for students to be more aware of where their strengths and talents lie, uh, where their interests might lie, and where, what they might be good at so that they can pursue those pathways. Um, and so therein, uh, where discretionary admissions came in, you know, how do you uh, then look at developing those strengths and talents and what can schools do to provide those opportunities for students to even discover that. So um, it's not purely just about uh, passion, as John said earlier, you know, just have your passion and then just pursue it and, and, uh, and that's it, you'll be successful. I think we know that even as you are pursuing things you're interested in, there are, you have to have a certain grit, you have to have that resilience, you have to have the um, ability to um, withstand the failure that will come even as you pursue your passion. Not everybody who pursues their passion or who pursues their interests are, will immediately be successful. You know, it takes a lot of hard work and everybody has to put in that hard work. So your, your, the, the question about social contract, morally, do we uh, owe the students something to say that, oh, you have pursued this, what the system has sort of put you through, or we think that this is the way you should proceed in your um, educational journey, and if you proceed this way, you should get there. Uh, I think with discretionary, discretionary admissions, with DSA, with uh, where we want to recognize our children's interests, our children's raw talent. Uh, sometimes we don't even need uh, exhibited talent. We don't even need them to have shown that they have achieved something, but they have raw talent. And we want to recognize them and nurture that and allow them the opportunity to develop in those areas. I think if we uh, do that, then that is what we need to do morally. <laughs> that is what we need to do to help them along that path and to help them recognize that if you don't pursue that and you just pursue something at um, where, what you think should happen, uh, then that is something that you may uh, end up finding, you know, your pathway has to change completely, that you, in the eyes of society, you may have been successful, but ultimately, in your own definitions, have you actually succeeded if you have not pursued uh, the pathways that you are most suited for, perhaps. So I think that that's something that we've been trying to work hard to uh, close the gaps on or to at least get the word out there and help uh, parents and teachers and the public shift mindsets. Um, and I think it's a continuing work that we have to, to do together. I think we really have to take the idea of uh, different pathways to success very seriously, you know, not just uh, among teachers or uh, principals, students, whatever, you know, every one of us should take it very seriously. Can we have a second uh, question now? Go ahead, please. Identify yourself too. And the rest, uh, please line up. Uh. Uh, hi, good morning. Uh, I'm Haiyan. I used to be in the MOE system for 10 years and recently left. Um, I think in 2012, when the idea of student-centric and value-driven was uh, established, I, I did raise a question to uh, the DG back then, Ms. Ho Peng, that uh, how, how do we uh, change this system from uh, assessment-driven towards value-driven education? And I, I remember the answer she told me back then was that uh, uh, we, we are trying and uh, let's time unfold how it takes us too, and since then five years has passed, so I'm quite curious uh, about how MOE has journeyed 
are on this uh, journey towards value-driven education, how value uh, has become a language in school rather than exam and grade because uh, I, I work in school and exam and grade and uh, assessment and tuition has always been a dominating language uh, whenever people talk about education uh, and value has not been the dominating language yet. Yeah, so how are we uh, continue to move towards value-driven education? That's my question. Thank you. Okay, I noticed that many questions coming up has to do with MOE, right? <laughs> so maybe I'm going to ask uh, Jason to respond, and then if Genevieve, you have a few lines to speak <laughs> in, you may. Thank you. Go ahead, Jason. Well, I, I'm very tempted to, to bring us back to my earlier phrase, a constant work in progress, because I think that's um, precisely in the nature of um, values in education. You, you never really reach a point where you say you are completely happy and satisfied with what you've accomplished. Because, because in the first place, values inculcation is a very long-term process. And uh, you, what you're hoping is that they learn something that will take them well into their adult years. And, and, and of course, you're not the only one responsible for values inculcation either. There's so many other influences um, over which you have little or no say in their lives. Yeah, over to you, Genevieve. <laughs> I, I wanted to, I used to tell parents, I, I used to be a, a school leader and in a primary school, and I used to tell parents that, you know, when your children come to us in primary school, they come at the age of six or seven, and at that point in time, their values are largely formed by you as parents. And I can tell quite quickly uh, within a, a within a couple of weeks, a month of interacting with the children, I can tell what kind of home they come from. I can tell what kind of parent you are. And the parents say, oh, please don't talk to my children, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because I think uh, they come exhibiting, you know, um, the behaviours based on what they have learnt and what they have already acquired. And it doesn't, they don't come as a clean slate. They're children, you know, so they come with um, whatever experiences they, they already have. And I just wanted to, to echo, Ami Hayen said, uh, it's been five years, 2012. Five years is a very short time <laughs> to change uh, a system, to change society, to change values, right? Something that has brought us success for uh, many years is something that we all, I guess, as parents as well ourselves, have experienced and we have uh, achieved a certain measure of success. Uh, so it is very difficult to let go. I think it is very difficult to uh, move away from that completely. But we're very heartened because I think the direction, I mean, the study shows and, uh, um, and several studies, I think, uh, that we have access to in terms of uh, data has shown that, you know, parents uh, do find... Um, that we are moving in the right direction. They want to be supportive. Uh, whenever I talk to parents, they say, yes, we fully support you. You know, We think it's very important, values education, uh, pursuing interests. We want to support our children in this. But has industry moved? Is my child going to get a job? You know, If industry doesn't move, then I better not move yet. You know, And uh, I, I wait and see whether my child will be able to get that job or will be able to get their 
their foot in the door. Um, so I think as a system, we, we need to move together in order for this to be the common language. I'm a great believer in, uh, in the use of language. I think where we use language um, to depict you know, what we value, and as a system, if we use that language collectively, then I think that will send signals to every one of us to say, hey, we really need to take this seriously. You know, when we say that we define a good school as a, a school that provides the most nurturing environment for my child, provides opportunities for my child, even if they did not come from the most advantaged backgrounds, they still have opportunities to succeed uh, in their own way, and they have ways to discover what they're interested in, how they can pursue those interests. Then I think uh, that kind of language, uh, we, we talk about shifting the needle in terms of what we value. So I think it's not just about values education, which I think collectively, I think you talk to 90% of parents, uh, almost all of them will say values would be the number one thing, that my child must have the right values. Because even if they, have the, they are the most academically uh, talented and they don't have the right values, they don't know how to make the right decisions, where will they be in life further downstream. So I think that's something that uh, we can collectively agree. But to shift that language use, uh, we have to do it together and everybody has to do it together. So it can't be just one person saying it in the school, but everybody in the school has to do that. And it takes, a, it takes time. It is a process of communication. It is a process of uh, showing that we have really put our money where we, our mouths are, you know, that we really put, uh, uh, change our practices and slowly shift those. But those take time and five years is not enough. <laughs> yeah, just a quick comment. Um, I think we have seen over the years that um, schools are moving more towards, like um, Genevieve said, understanding every child. And I, and I think teachers um, do get data about each and every child in their class. And I think that's good data-driven um, efforts that we are seeing. Um, I think the, the, the next um, step is to really see um, what, what do we do with the data and you know, you know, the, with the data that we have, um, how can we better equip our, our teachers you know, to, to act on the data and better help their students? Mm -hmm. Any other questions on the floor? I think increasingly employers are also using other methods of assessing candidates or right, job candidates. It's no longer about just an interview and see how impressive they are on paper, right? I understand that sometimes uh, it could be, the interview could be actually going for lunch uh, and see how people behave, right, at lunchtime, you know? Uh, so I always, I always told my student, I say, you know, when you go for this kind of interview, uh, please don't wear a white shirt, number one. And number two, uh, don't order curry chicken because you might get a whole, you know, your whole shirt nah, full of different colors, right? All right, next, next uh, questioner, please. Okay, I do have a list of questions here, and I'm told that I'm supposed to press some buttons here, right? <laughs> and I see no button, okay? Uh, so, can I use this? There is one question that is very long, right? and I thought maybe you should have some short question instead. <laughs> Okay, what should I do? Yeah. Okay, there's something about the uh, Finnish, uh, okay, Finland. Uh, Finnish education system, right, is also one of the best in the world, right? Homework is kept at a number of hours well below what our students spend on homework. Can we do something similar? Huh? So, I mean, Finland is supposed to be the model that we want to emulate, right? So, is it really uh, the way to go? 
Anybody want to talk about that? Maybe uh, John, you got something to say? Huh? <laughs> it worries me that you all laugh before I even say anything. <laughs> <laughs> about the finished model, can we do with less homework? Of course we can do with less homework, right? Um, but like in every race, there are a few people who will spoil market, right? Uh, that, that has always been the problem in time immemorial. Um, I think the homework, in, in many instances, when I look at the children, actually gets in the way of the learning. Uh, the homework, if you look at a primary school, is typically about drilling. It's not about learning. And it is about drilling because when you get to the exam, if you look at your PSLE, primary six math exam, if you are not well drilled, let me tell you, you will never smell an A. You know why? Because I did the paper myself and I didn't get an A. <laughs> of course, we, we, we set these really, really, really ridiculously difficult questions and we say, well, we're testing them and seeing if they can be critical thinkers. And my response then is, well, if that was the only question and they sit there with a cup of coffee and they get an hour to think about it, then you can test whether they can critically think. But when the paper is 40 pages long and 25% of the sums are like that, then it's not about critical thinking. It's about how effectively and how quickly you can negotiate and maneuver that paper. So if we do with less homework, um, it also has to come with the, the, the people who set exams. I don't know who, what they're called. Are they called the examiners? Um, setting more reasonable papers, right? Uh, but then there's this whole question, right? Can you set more reasonable papers? Because then how do you tell in a system where we value relative performance, right? How do you tell whether the, the, these guys are the top and, and, and it's, it's not just about absolute standards of literacy and numeracy anymore? So um, I think, you know, as a society, we just need to chill a little bit. Uh, Mr. Chairman, can I ask a question? Is it normal that a panelist asks a question? Sure, please. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Please. I, I actually want to re-ask Pauline's question because um, I, I, I'm interested in the answer. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't answered. I'm, I'm interested in the answer. Uh, Genevieve, no, um, don't get upset with me. <laughs> it appears you're a very powerful person. But <laughs> I think her question about the social contract is, is, is that as, as a society, there is an, uh, a consensus and agreement that we would all be um, you know, running on the rules of meritocracy. And in the education system, meritocracy is, I suppose, your grades, lah, right? Um, as MOE expands the DSA, uh, how do we know then that the admissions process is going to be fair, transparent, and, and, and keep everyone happy, right? Rather than, uh, and, and was that the question? Because that would have been my question. I'm just assuming that's your <laughs> question. I'm flattering myself, am I? Yeah, okay. Okay, I guess it's me now. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let me take that last part first on uh, meritocracy, and then I will get to the, to the other question on homework. Um, I think we really do have to uh, change the way we think about meritocracy beyond grades. Um, and so how 
other measures? How are the uh, selection tests, for example, when we talk about DSA, right? How are they going to be fair? How are they going to be transparent? I think this is where we are continuing to refine our selection criteria, continuing to work with the schools to say, you have to ensure that you stand up to scrutiny, right? So how do you, uh, how do you put in place um, selection tests that will um, be able to quite clearly identify, I think, children that have talent in particular areas. So it could be demonstrated talent in terms of uh, you put them through a sports test or you put them through a, a music thing. And, and not just, uh, how do you identify talent? How do you say, is it, does it have to be achievement oriented? It may not have to be achievement oriented. So what we want to work against is just using purely um, objective measures because I can start my child with tennis lessons or music lessons at the age of three if I have the resources to do so, right? And if I have the resources to do so, then my child will have all these certificates. But if the school only relies on these certificates, for example, then we will have a whole group of children who will never have access to something like that because where are they going to get the resources to be able to get those certificates uh, or to be able to have the uh, training. So we want to find ways to identify raw talent. I must say we, we are working on it. It, is, it continues to be a work in progress um, and uh, in, in ref continually refining the selection criteria. But we are recognizing that we do need to move away from just purely demonstrated achievement uh, alone. And uh, that to us is doing the child justice. It is really helping children to discover their talents and to be able to, uh, to give them opportunities which they may not have otherwise. So this idea of meritocracy is something that we want to say, we want to be able to say that uh, the child has in some way demonstrated that they, they are deserving of that place uh, and the school should be able to uh, articulate what they looked out for in terms of um, whether it's sports talent or whether it is a music talent, uh, what did they look out for? So that's, that's one of the reasons why we've moved away from just looking at um, the general ability test, which is more a pen and paper uh, type of a test and to say, you know, let's, let's recognize other talents and find ways that we can do this. Okay, yeah, I think we have one question from the floor. Okay, two, and then that's it, all right. After that, I can see sugar running in your face huh? uh, for tea time. Tea. So let's have uh, you and then you, okay? And then that's it. The latest, I mean, uh, current neuroscience is on epigenetics which is the study of um, expressions of heritable traits being uh, changed by environment influences. So, so our DNA is not our destiny. So um, the environment and lifestyle can actually turn on or off the gene expression. One example is our own Conductor Wong Kachun, uh, he's the first Asian conductor to win the Gustav Mahler competition for conducting, and he's back in Singapore. And he just started as a band member in the primary school. So if we can provide all that, 
instead of just having parents who can send their kids for music, or well, music's always my example, uh, you, you, we have bands so that we can actually provide the environment for that gene to be turned on. That's yes. all I want to comment. Okay, maybe a one-line response from uh, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> totally oh, stunned, right? <laughs> you, you caught me at a bad moment. <laughs> Getting my load of sugar. Oh, this is embarrassing. Over 100 people are gazing at me, chewing. Okay. Um, I think I want to follow up on what Genevieve said earlier on and, and perhaps address what Mrs. Lim has, has raised. Um, it is very clear to me that the um, direct school admission scheme represents a, an attempt to broaden the concept of the term merit. And, and, and that's why I chose my words carefully earlier on in my presentation when I said um, every child needs to have that equal chance to acquire merit within a meritocracy. Because a lot of people, I think, take the term meritocracy um, far too much for granted without really questioning what exactly the term merit is all about. Um, so I see, as I said earlier, in this um, DSA scheme, an attempt on the part of the Ministry of Education to broaden people's um, conceptions about what it means to have merit. And um, in that regard, I think it's important, as I said in my presentation, to ensure that every child has that fair chance to have his or her talents um, discovered and developed. Otherwise, um, schemes such as the DSA won't really go all that far in terms of helping us identify and nurture um, that so-called merit. Okay, so the last question, can you keep it short, please? Good morning. Uh, my name is Richard Xiao, and um, 20 years ago, I took this lens and my perspective from one of being a parent and having had four children go through local and international schools and with a lot of complaints, my wife asked me to stop complaining and join the school board. So my next perspective was from a school board perspective, and for more than a decade, I've been on the Anglo-Chinese school board. Um, having had that perspective, when the MOE invited me to go on the Republic Polytechnic School Board, I jumped at the chance and from a top school, elite school, exclusive school, depending on how you want to define it, um, I went to the newest polytechnic and spent a lot of time working with RP to look at their issues from a neighborhood polytechnic perspective. I also served on um, Sports Singapore. And so the lens, just coming back from the SEA Games, um, and the comment about DSA in schools and all of that sort of rings home and true. But the comments I want to talk about are a couple. Firstly is mindset, and secondly is unintended consequences. Firstly, um, I have to, it would be remiss if I didn't thank IPS and MOE for the fantastic work that they've been doing. And from all the different lenses, I know it's an extremely challenging job, and I've got nothing but respect for the people at MOE and what, um, issues that they have to deal with every day from difficult board members to difficult parents to problems of the real world. In terms of language, I really like what Genevieve has said because language can be very constructive and destructive. Um, when we use the term elite schools, um, 
in one sense, elite is very good if you're a fighting force, but elite is a bad word in Singapore if you're a school. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about ACS, I like to talk about ACS as not being an elite school, but being an inclusive school. It's the school that basically has been around for 132 years. Um, there are six ACS schools, and if the MOE would allow us, we would be happy to have seven, eight, nine, ten schools. Um, and the reason is we want to be an inclusive school. If you look at unintended consequences of our admission policies in primary schools, the unintended consequence of the proximity uh, admission rule is that the school, the areas around the ACS primary schools have become extremely expensive neighborhoods. So when I draw a concentric circle of one to two kilometers around ACS primary and ACS junior, there are no housing estates. They're only very expensive condos or landed properties. So in that consequence, what we've done is the unintended consequence is that we've raised property prices and the general man in the street actually can't get into those schools. So that's one of the unintended consequences and the difficulty. When you get to secondary school and merit comes into place, then you have kids who can afford to go for tuition or enrichment classes. They do well and they know how to take the examinations and they can get into schools. We see less of a problem and less stratification in secondary school, but they still exist. Um, on DSA, I actually am not a fan of DSA because just as we have 10-year series exams and we know how to do the exams, parents and students and coaches have learned how to actually game the DSA system. So when you look at DSA from primary six into secondary one, and I look at an athlete, um, is it really the ability of the athlete or has the athlete been an early maturer or has been coached to actually do well? What the DSA for sport actually promotes is early specialization, which I'm not a fan of. So we see a lot of young athletes who are coached at a very high level in primary school, primary five specifically, that then go and do the DSA test. They get into the school of choice and then they become injured or they actually don't do well at an at a international or national level. So I think while the purpose of the rule and the, the policy put in place was a good one, the unintended consequence is actually over-specialization and injury. Um, I really enjoyed John's remarks and conversations, and I've got a lot of good friends from St. Pat's. I'm sorry that the financial advisors had to use Oops. their school um, um, to try and market their product. But I'll, I'll give you a different example. And the, one example is actually from the SEA Games. Um, we sent a group of supporters up, and in a sea of very hostile support, from the Malaysians, the Singaporeans were there wearing red, cheering hard. Our teams finished last in the relays, but we were there and we cheered for them. And there's a great affinity, and being part of a tribe is what we all are. And I think it's very important that we recognize that when we go out and we support Singapore, we're part of the Singapore tribe. But when we're in Singapore here and we're amongst each other, I don't think any of us feel particularly Singaporean because we're all Singaporean. But this thing about being part of a tribe starts with families, it starts with schools. And I'm really, really pleased that people are not ashamed to be old boys of ACS. And they stand up and they say, we're part of ACS, are you part of our group? Because they're trying to form affinity. And so it's important that all schools start growing that affinity. At Republic Polytechnic, one of the things that we try to do is we try to essentially say, keep the alumni together. How do you actually grow RP alumni? One of the biggest successes at RP is that while I was there as chair of RP board, we had our first student from RP 
get accepted into NUS Medical School. And it was a huge achievement, all right, to do that. And with that one success, then the next student went, then the third student went. Upon each success grows success. ACS started 132 years ago in Amoy Street for, for essentially Chinese merchants. It took 132 years before a group of ACS boys was willing to go to a St. Pat's uh, uh, chocolate shop owner to basically market the business and tell him that we're all from ACS. Um, so I hope, and it's my, my real hope, that each school actually builds up strong alumni, builds up those ties, builds up those networks, and truly then every school will become a good school. But until then, I don't think we should be shy as to where we come from. But the key thing, I think, for all of us is not to be elite, it's not to be exclusive, but really it's to be inclusive. Thank you. All right, thanks for your comments. <clears throat> okay, with that, I think let's thank the uh, panelists and uh, we are all for tea. Thank you very much. Thank you, speakers and chairperson. It's now time for a short break and refreshments are available outside the ballroom. Please be seated back inside by 11.30 and you are few, uh, feel free to bring your refreshments back in with you.